Welcome to the Mastering Fulfillment Podcast, where we focus on bridging success with fulfillment in your personal, business, and spiritual life. And now your hosts, Scott Berry and Joshua Wenner. I want to welcome everybody to today's podcast. My name is Joshua Wenner and my other host, Scott Berry. How you doing, Scott? Good, good. We're, we're really excited about today's guest. Today's guest is uh, Mr. Philip Folsom. Uh, I've become good, good friends with Philip and actually a business partner in another project called K4, which is men's work. So know a lot about Philip and Philip and really excited to have him on today's podcast. So I'll give you a brief background about Philip before we jump in is he is an anthropologist and a culture development expert and the owner of Wolf Tribe, Humankind, and a co-founder of Sparta, which helps PTSD and suicide prevention programs for warriors, and K4, which is men's work, helping men step more into the archetypes of king, lover, magician, and warrior. He also is a regular contributor at the USC Marshall School of Business, and he sits on the high-performance board of Red Bull and works with a lot of big clients like Microsoft, Apple, Snapchat, SpaceX, and just a really amazing human. So I want to welcome you to today's show. So grateful for you being here today, Philip. Super cool being here. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. So uh, as we jump in, uh, maybe if you could just start off on, I want to save a lot of this for the content that you have, but I really think it's interesting of how we find our path to ending up doing what we're doing. And yeah. I would definitely say from what I know, you are doing what you're made for. You're doing your work on the planet. You are living your purpose. And you know, for those that are still struggling to find that alignment, maybe if you could just show like what brought you through that? How did you mm. end up starting to do the work that you're doing now? What led you to that discovery? There seems to be a big distinction between um, passion and purpose. And those are obviously big buzzwords right now uh, of the zeitgeist of the times. Mm-hmm. In fact, kind of the current generation's uh, paychecks are in many ways determined by a sense of purpose. So for all you guys out there who are listening, who own companies, it's very important to uh, make sure your vision statement includes purpose because that seems to be one of the primary drivers of engagement and retention for the current generation. So um, purpose is a big term. In fact, I usually use it with a capital P whenever I'm writing about purpose because it's kind of like capital G for God. You know, it means it's a very different thing when... Um, in the context. But what we're referring to in purpose, I think is related to the theme of this podcast about fulfillment. You might also use capital F for fulfillment. It's a big topic. And um, I think the challenge with this is that most people, particularly men, don't even uh, find or have the capacity to engage with purpose until they're in their 40s. You know, I mean, this is a big, big topic. This is almost your life meaning it's legacy. I mean, these are some, this is some big game mm-hmm. conversation. So um, whenever I'm coaching younger people and, and us older people about purpose is um, I always encourage them to pursue passion first. And passion is the stuff that you will do for free. Or if you won the lottery, you would choose to do those things that bring you um, a passionate engagement, which I think is probably bundled within our definitions of fulfillment, which might be a fun conversation to have. And so um, I use like the metaphor of um, passion as being the kindling that we start the fire with and that we Mm. can ignite easily and it burns hot and quick. 
And yes, it does go out quickly and passions do. But um, if we follow the scent trail of our passions long enough, then not only are we in fi- you know, on fire and we're, we're hot, it keeps our wood dry. And at some point we come along a big Yule log of purpose, right? And, if, and at that point, as long as we're hot enough and burning bright enough that we can manage to get that big log on fire of purpose, then, you know, then we got a shot at doing some big things. And it appears in my experience so far and into my fifties that um, we can't do that alone. It, you know, all the mythology always seems to point towards at least having three good men to help you bucket out the lake, slay the dragon, uh, do whatever that, you know, take the ring to Mordor. We need friends to mm. be able to find purpose. So that's that's the thrust of my work right now is is reintroducing tribe and kinship back into our culture, which is my purpose after following my passions for a long time. Awesome. And and uh, how do you do that? Like, what would you say is, is some of the fundamentals or the some fundamental understandings or framework that people have to know? Uh, maybe get into a little bit about uh, the work that you've, I, I've learned so much for you about what it means to be alone and isolated and the, you know, the work that you do with wolves and maybe give us a little bit of insight on how those two relate and how um, your, your anthropology background kind of combines with your leadership background um, to unveil that for, yeah. for systems that you suggest we do. No, I'm just kind of um, pedaling back a little bit. My, my uh, initial journey was about fixing myself in which I think there's there, you know, Again, back to mythology, there's always uh, some sort of a, either lesson or goal or transformation that is mind in shadow and, and adversity. And that's, you know, that's part of this conversation that we cannot um, discover passions, purpose or fulfillment unless without paying the price of, of shadow. They're not free. Hmm. And we, so we need to be able to um, take a look at some of our, our inadequacies and our fears and our abandonment issues and, and some of the broken pieces inside if we're going to be doing any of that, that uh, work of, of pursuing those, those uh, big things. Hmm. And so my, that, was, that was my initial journey was you know, coming from a lot of pre-trauma and coming from some poverty and some neglect and recognizing that you know, I had some core wounds that – um, and Joshua, I loved your analogy about the, you know, the amputation piece. And I don't want to steal your analogy, although I often do sometimes. But uh, you have a really good analogy about, you know, core wounds as being, you know, the level of, of um, a injury that doesn't heal. I mean, you will always have those core wounds. So instead of trying to avoid it and, try, and being resentful that they haven't healed, it's more about acknowledging and loving it, and then making sure that that thing has a seat at the table so that it doesn't possess us in the dark. Hmm. Like, you know, you want to make sure your toys are put away so you don't step on them. For all you kids, who are, you know, you people have kids out there, put your Legos away in boxes so they don't step on them at night. Hmm. That's like our pre-trauma. We want to make sure that it's not bouncing around in our life. And my um, process of healing myself led me to a lot of the modalities that I use now currently. I did sweat lodges and I did ropes courses and I did equestrian therapy and Zen archery. And all of these things led me to um, a greater understanding about my internal landscape and what I needed to do to heal. But 
more than anything else, it was also the recognition that it wasn't just me. And I thought that I was the only one and that I had, I was an anomaly. And that the fact that I was inadequate was somehow evidence that I was broken. And it really wasn't. I think everybody who's listening probably has a little me too right there about being inadequate mm. and, and having an imposter syndrome. And none of us wants to get found out and revealed. And none of us has been initiated. And this is one of the central um, themes to anthropology is that at some point, both men and women um, receive an initiation process that um, in it metaphorically kills the boy so that the, the man can be born. And at that point, we leave aside childish things and we take on the role of being a full-fledged member of the tribe and a, ultimately a father and a leader and a and none of us had that. So there's this little prince inside of us that's still clamoring for some sort of expression. And it doesn't serve us. It's very maladaptive. Mm. Um, so that was a healing process. And it, and it gave rise to a lot of my work with particularly men in, in our current society. But organizationally, because organizations and cultures are created by an aggregate of a bunch of broken people. So they're broken also. So, you know, even we take a look at these extraordinary companies around Los Angeles and go, oh, if I could just work there, I will be fulfilled. And we're, we're not. They're just as broken as everything else. Right. Um, and uh, Krishnamurti has a wonderful saying that uh, it is no measure of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, evidence and research now about how maladaptive and broken our society is. We're, we're experiencing um, epidemic rates of clinical anxiety and suicide and depression. And it's a frightening statistic to look at the, the arc that we're on right now of our mental health. It, it, it doesn't bode well for us uh, long-term as a, a current expression of our society if we continue with this level of suicide. Hmm. You know, I love, I love how you really talk about embracing the the shadow aspect of it and um you know just like when you talked about the me too i mean there is a me too i I believe of pretty much everyone walking this planet of some type of trauma or deep shadow and um the shadow almost becomes it almost sounds like from what you were just saying almost becomes an ally to doing your purpose work right without really embracing the shadow that you almost need to be in alignment with that as, as a friend and an ally to really embrace everything that's cultivated uh, in the past and you know even the trauma that's going on with you. And, and so would you say that, you know, that that's a pretty important piece of really utilizing the potential of doing your purpose work? Absolutely. And, you know, we, again, I, I refer to mythology as uh, it's like the, the operating system of our species. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, nobody gave us the manual on how to live a human life. Uh, and it, uh, if we really want some of those ancient elder wisdom pieces that we, we do have to go back to our mythology and it, it's profound, the mythological lessons happening in there, but shadow runs through all mythology. And um, one of my favorite ones, this has become a mantra of mine recently. Last couple months is, uh, when, and I stole this from Joseph Campbell. Let me let me cite him because mm-hmm. he's one of my heroes. But you know, he says when when the knights um, 
left the round table to go on their grail quest, um, they entered the woods at their own darkest point. Mm. And that's profound. Yeah. You know, like they, they didn't join, you know, they didn't go in a big group and they didn't go into the path. He says, if you, if you're following somebody else's path, it's not your path and you'll never find your grail. You have to go into the woods at your own darkest point. And it's unavoidable, you know, the, and, you know, an, another Campbellism is the cave you fear to enter contains the treasure you seek. Yeah. It's I love that the one. shadow is inherently connected to um, the gold in the same way that, um, intimacy that we all are clamoring after is connected to uh, uncomfortable vulnerability mm. and bravery is connected mm. to fear and mm. uh, success is connected to adversity. And yet uh, we live in a culture where we have sufficiently um, domesticated wildness to the point that we think that any type of adversity now is somehow bad. We don't get to, um, you know, none of us sees the death of the animals that we eat. We don't get to wash our dead. We don't get to um, in any way deal with shadow. We have attempted to sterilize all of that from our life. And so, you know, Sigmund Freud talks about the hydraulic theory that whatever we shove down and we, we don't express is going to come spurting out in some maladaptive way. Yeah. And that's what's happening with shadow right now is that, uh, you know, we don't know, we don't deal with death. We don't even use the word cancer. Like to say the word cancer is kind of like, shh, say that, you know, or, you know, it's just, so shadow is an integral part, just like death is an integral part. Like we eat other animals, you know, I mean, that's, that's part of it. Have you killed an animal recently? You ever, you know, like that's a, that's a profound moment. And it's part of what we do as a species. That's, that's the game. And um, so in the pursuit of, I guess, fulfillment as the theme of this is uh, we should probably start looking at uh, the shadows because that's where we mine gold always. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I, you mentioned something about, uh, you know, it's just interesting as you're talking, it's like, I, I love how your, your model of, wolves you're saying hunting big game and it triggered something of thinking like how wolves hunt together and have specialized in about maybe the versatility conversation comes to mind of like you know how versatile we're wanting to become i know we've talked a lot about that maybe go into that a little bit more of like it's really interesting work that you do with wolves and the study of wolves and and how they were the super predator and then how we've kind of taken over and where we're at now and how we get back to that center so maybe maybe you could give your your viewpoint on that piece yeah um <clears throat> Well, the, the, the shadow that we're talking about is symbolized by wildness. In fact, he's called the wild man or Iron John. And so for all the men listening, um, you know, the primary kind of handbook for men is called Iron John. It's written, it's a book by Robert Bly. And the subtitle is a book about men. And, the, and Iron John is the wild man. He is... Um, he lives in the shadows. He is the thing that we have domesticated and we have forced down and hidden. And in the beginning of the book, they find him in a drowned in a pond. He lives in a pond and um, all water themes are uh, in our subconscious. You know, it represents um, shadow. That's it represents that subconscious or unconscious things in our, in our being. So, we have to bucket out the lake with the help of our friends, 
to be able to reveal the wild man. And that's the source then of all the inspiration, the rest of the story of, uh, you know, the prince going through those cycles. And at the end of Iron John, he receives um, the gift of three horses and, and warriors dressed in three different colors. And the last color that eventually wins the entire battle are uh, black horses and men in black armor. And that represents the integration of the shadow. It means mm. that the prince has finally consumed and eaten and transformed, alchemized his shadow, mm. and he has become the king. At that mm. point, you get to wed the princess. You get the gift of your kingdom. You get, in this case, fulfillment or purpose. So the wolf is that. The wolf mm. um, is the echo of that long-time wildness. They represent that. And it's why so many people um, have demonized it. That's why it, it fulfills the boogeyman role of, you know, the little red riding hood, the big bad wolf, the werewolf. The, I mean, that's the boogeyman because it is the wildness that um, at one point was our heritage. That's our birthright. We lived in it. So um, human beings just really quickly are, are uh, our species, about a quarter of a million years old, we're, we're um, based out of Africa, home base Africa. And, and we were a very negligible species for 200,000 of those years. We scavenged mm. off of uh, the apex predators on the, or, or, you know, around, around the world. And those apex predators were wolves. And they were the apex predators because um, not because they were fast or strong or powerful. It was because they um, developed the secret of evolution and most people think evolution is survival of the fittest. And that's actually a mis misstatement. Evolution is actually survival of the most adaptable. Hmm. So I love that. wolves, wolves um, hacked that evolutionarily. And um, how you hack adaptability is by specializing and having uh, versatility of behavior and, and so wolves were the first obviously species that we know of that was able to, create different behavioral roles within a species. And there is a alpha wolf and the alpha wolf of a pack is always a female. And she generally partners with the alpha male, which is kind of more of the warrior class regulator um, power wolf. And then there's the specialist wolves, which are the, the, the trackers or the scent people or the high speed there. There's somehow have a unique gift that they bring to a, and, and wolves hunt very different things in different parts of the world, but they are always big game. And then there's always that kind of a intimate, uh, compassionate, what we would call a lover class wolf, which is called the nanny. And their entire job was to take care of the um, pups, the offspring of the breeding pair. And only the breeding pair um, are the ones that, you know, procreate. And so it's not like all the wolves are a free for all, all trying to get theirs. Like we live, hmm. you know, we're all trying, we get ours. And then the idea behind everybody listening now is, well, once I make it, then I give back. That's how our society operates. It's very prideful and tribe cultures don't operate based on pride. They operate based on honor. It's a very different operating system. Hmm. Um, pride is intrapersonal. It's what I feel about myself. 
honor is interpersonal. It's what I think you think about me. And so um, in most tribal cultures, and I you know, spent last year um, uh, parts of it in Kenya with the Maasai, and, and they don't, the Maasai don't have any language for my children. They only have language for the children. Hmm. It kind of gives you an idea about um, the way they operate. Um, in almost all tribal cultures, having too much stuff is a, is a version of insanity. They call it insane. Hmm. If you are, if you live by yourself, you're insane. And they, 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 um, you know, will come take care of you. (laughs) You know, they'll, 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 a bunch of people come and go, Oh, oh, you've got a mental problem. We're going to try to fix this for you. You know, cause you're, you're hoarding too much shit and you're living alone. So you're insane. Right. And, um, so wolves are like that. And, and the long story short is we probably adopt, adopted all of those behavioral patterns by our um, longtime scavenging from that species. So we um, adopted the behaviors, the versatility, the altruism, the uh, profound collaboration that is at the heart of every tribal culture. And it worked really well for us. We're actually quite probably genetically um, designed for that living um, cycle. We have mirror neurons that drive empathy and compassion in our brains. We have uh, a whole slew of of just perfectly adapted um, tools to live the life of a bipedal primate wolf pack. That's really what we are at our core. And then that worked very well until agriculture. And then all of a sudden, it was now very, very easy to have too much stuff. And now when we have too much stuff, um, the males had to start defending that too much stuff from other people. And so all of a sudden males now had, uh, and the warrior class of our species, which primarily is male, all of a sudden now had an inordinate amount of power. And now all of a sudden we're living in groups larger than a hundred. So we can no longer maintain these deep, vulnerable, intimate relationships that are our core of our kinship systems. And now we're living with 200 people. So now I don't really know everybody in the village. I just kind of know, you know, what they look like, but I don't know their full name. Oh, now I'm with 500 people. And now I don't even know who they are. I just see them every once in a while. And now I'm starting to get anxiety about who am I and who are those strangers? Hmm. And now I live in Los Angeles with 10 million people and I'm utterly lost. And it doesn't matter how many thousands of followers you have and how many likes you get on your posts, you will never be fulfilled. Hmm. You know, I'm so fascinated by this whole idea of just tribes in general. And, you know, I've got a, I've got kind of a two part question for you. So I've built a few businesses, um, almost all of them, uh, two out of the three I've, I've built by myself, like completely driven. Um, but there was, you know, I have one business that has been really quite successful, but in the back of my mind, I always know that there was this extra level, this, th- this other place that I wasn't able to get to because I didn't have a partner or a tribe, you know, I would have employees, but they weren't necessarily my counsel, if you will. And so, um, you know, I think the the first question I have is, in in regards to purpose, 
you know, especially for a man, but, you know, we can dissect this from for anybody, you know, how important is it to really align with your tribe, you know, and this is why I'm so uh, curious and fascinated and um, by the work that you guys are doing, that you and Josh are doing with Wolf Tribe, you know, like how important is that? And then I guess the second part of my question is just around tribes and communal living, you know, how you see that impacting us in the Western society as the nuclearization of the family life just becomes more the dominant model. Yes. Um, we are designed, we're a kinship based species. Mm. The first of all, so, um, and kinship can I just fun fact is the root of the word kind. So kindness is the way we treat kin. Like that, it's in the word, yeah, right, yeah. And so, if if you know, we want more kindness, then we need to create more kin. And you know, the way we treat everybody else who's not our kin, well, they don't get kindness. Hmm. They get some other form of behavior, which is very um, usually it's going to be impersonal. It's transactional. It's unfulfilling, and in fact, it's driven by fear. Um, so, really, part of the solution for hacking all these problems is to is to uh, rebuild kinship systems. And we could probably spend the rest of the time just talking about that, but it's really, really important. Um, and so we're kinship based systems, organisms, but we're in a career based culture, mm. which means, you know, yeah. how do we find a way to um, put the clutch of those two worlds together so that we get something that's uh, sustainable and valuable? And I, I, and I, I believe there's ways to do it. There are organizations that are doing it well. And it really comes down to um, also what you're related to when you're, when you're talking about um, purpose and fulfillment, generally that's has to do with other people has to do with Mm -hmm. um, ultimately it connecting to other people. There's a oneness conversation about that. That's really, there's a, and we all have a very different expression for that. Like the people who are very warrior class, very driven, A-type, for them, fulfillment is accomplishing things, right? I mean, that, there are a lot of, like, you love to build companies and be successful and make, make money. Like, that's all really valuable, wonderful stuff as long as it's aligned towards taking all of that back to the people, mm then it's awesome. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to go, yeah, I, I, I went out and got this elk and here is the elk. Give me praise, acknowledge me, you know, and thank me. That's great. For some people, it's, I'm, I like to take care of people directly. And there's an endless amount of industries that are built around that. Then there's other people who love solving problems and, and, and figuring out how to fix the things in our society. But again, it's not directly about that. It's, it's about being able to recognize that that fixing or creation of that thing is landing with the people. And ultimately, no matter what that thing is that you're passionate about, until it connects with people, it doesn't become purpose. Hmm. Does that land? Yeah. It sounded good to me. I wanted to write it down. <laughs> <laughs> we'll play it back for you. <laughs> okay. So, so when Pat, until passion connects with people, it doesn't become purpose. Say that again. Yeah, say that again. 
until until passion connects with people, it doesn't become purpose. Interesting. Okay. Hashtag Philip Olson. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> TM. So, um, it, so at some point, no matter whatever the, the companies are or the careers that we choose, or um, we recognize that it's got to be it's got to land in service of others. Yeah. And yeah. And we sh- we do deserve to be compensated for that service in every way. And that doesn't necessarily mean money. It means acknowledgement. It means, um, you know, everything that validates us, you know, and rewards us. We, you know, it, but service is first. Yeah. And then what about the, the second question about, you know, how we are moving just more into the dominant role of the nuclearization of family life versus communal life? Yeah, it, it's, I think it's uh, fairly unavoidable, Yeah. right? I mean, it's yeah. one of those things that um, we all have our, we all have our little houses, mm-hmm. we all have our little yards, and, and that, that and that, none of that is bad, that there, you know, that exists, there's igloos with one family, there's a teepee with one family, there's a hut in Africa with one family, I mean, that's not a bizarre, it's not an, um, an aberration, from tribe culture in any way. It's more about the conversation of, um, yes, there are, we call them nuclear families, but there's always been families, always. Yep. Yep. It's more about what is the community? Yeah. What is the community? Do you know your neighbors? And more importantly, do you know the neighbor next to them? Mm. And most people don't. Yeah. And, that, and, and so once again, if you don't know the middle name of your neighbors and I'd ask everybody to ask yourself that. Do I know, do I know the parents' names of my neighbors? And if you don't, they're not your kinfolk. And therefore, you are not receiving that delicious uh, well-being hormone that's called serotonin, mm-hmm. which I would probably, I would, I would make a case, is the biochemical definition of fulfillment. Hmm. Serotonin is the biochemical definition of fulfillment. And so if you are not having, uh, you know, if you haven't connected that to the kinship level of, uh, you know, reward, then I think that we're missing out on those things. So it's not about the nuclear family, I believe. It's more about the community. Right. And that's the big one. So the next follow-up question is, what do we do about it? And um, generally in most models, uh, when we're starting to, really intentionally build culture. And this has been well-researched in sports psychology, in business, in the military. Like, it's still alive and well. Tribe creation is happening. We just don't call it tribe creation. We call it um, creating a high-functioning elite military unit, a championship sports team, a really high-functioning corporate culture. That's tribe development. And they use different language, but it's the same exact theme. You got to figure out um, what is your common vision? What are you navigating off of? What's that North Star that, that your company or your church or your community? What is that thing that holds you together? And so that's your vision. And, and that's a really, really important uh, aspirational, you know, mountain in the distance that is never climbed. But it's there. And we can all look at that and go, at one point we were Americans. I mean, that was important. That was kind of our, our guiding principle. And um, 
you know, particularly as our tribes get bigger, we move from tribe to nation. A nation is a collection of tribes, right? And so you have you have families, hunting parties, tribes, clans, a collection of tribes, and then you have nation. And the bigger you get, the stronger the vision has to be or the collective mythology that you share. And obviously right now we're, we're just utterly fractured. Uh, we're, we're so fractured that um, we are poisoned by contempt for mm. other people now in our nation. And that can't stand at some point. Um, and I guess that's, a, that's probably another kettle of fish to talk about politics but so vision is is uh vital for creating um tribe cohesion transparency of what you're working on this is mission uh is absolutely vital and then the last big one is what are the value sets that are um guiding the behavior of the people Hmm. and traditionally as soon as we became tribe to nation then our religion stepped in and religion is a is a very almost um, targeted um, response to providing values for large groups of people. Because it used to be there was a chief, there was a shaman, and we all and now we have a long mythology of this is the way we conduct ourselves. If you're a Spartan, you know damn well what your values are. If you're an Apache, you know very well what your values are. If you are a samurai from a particular clan in Osaka you know what your values are. They're taught to you from a very early age and you do, you, you do not deviate, you know, because deviation from values means you're no longer part of that tribe. Hmm. So you're excommunicated. And now all of a sudden, you know, every individual person has their own individual values. So that doesn't, um, that doesn't work in terms of a group context. So when, when a sports team or a company starts recognizing that they're going to have to deal with change and, and um, challenge and adversity, and they're going to have to start making decisions. Well, those decisions need to be guided by the values of the organization. So that alignment is absolutely vital for creating culture. And that's a lot of the work that I do with my, my clients is really digging into what are the operating values of their, their company and what are they, are they willing to pay the price for those? Because everything has a price to it. For instance, the price of this collaborative thing that we're talking about, which sounds really good, is you don't get to be independent anymore. Ooh, like that's just, you know, all of a sudden there's accountability. All of a sudden there, you know, there's responsibility. There's a lot of stuff that comes from, you know, being collaborative. And so, a lot, you know, my work is to be able to, you know, try to show them that, yep, all this gold that you want is mined in this shadow. We're ready to pay the price. Okay. And now we got to create buy-in. And more importantly, before you get to buy-in, you have to get your leadership online because leaders are the head of culture. So whoever are the people in your company, whether that be a, your soccer team, you know, or, you know, a aerospace, whoever the leaders are of that of that culture, they're the ones that need to be able to get an agreement about what their value set is because literally they're modeling, they're generating culture the moment they walk in. They're the force multipliers of culture. 
So, you know, what does that look like in teams? It makes sense. The leaders have to model that. Is it the same thing that can be done in communities like the average mm-hmm. person? Absolutely. They're going, I want more fulfillment. Can they literally just start to say, let me go meet my neighbors. Yep. Uh, let me help somebody on the road when I'm driving down the street. Like how, like mm-hmm. what can they, is there tangible things they can do to start having more kinship? And will that lead to increased, uh, you know, uh, like, um, you, you know, in Los Angeles, and we all live in Los Angeles, right? Scott, Los Angeles? No, I'm in uh, San Francisco. Oh, okay. Okay. A big city. Yep. Um, if you're driving in a big city and you see somebody litter, it's not your job to tell them not to litter, right? That's not your job. Yep. And you probably don't. And, and like we'll, our job is not to check on that homeless person who may or may not be dead. In a small town, it's absolutely your job. Yeah. And if you see somebody litter, if you see somebody park poorly, you're like, hey, 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 you know, not cool. Yep. Well, well they actually did. They actually did a really famous study where they had um, these stage experiments where someone was broken down on the side of the road, changing a tire. They did it in the big city, and they did it in a very, very small town, and it was like a twenty to one ratio of people that would actually pull over and help them. Because the context was, hey, look, if I'm in the big city, there's like I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles. There's 10 million other people that's probably going to help them. It, it's not my not my problem, not my issue, not my responsibility. But in a small town, it's like, if not me, who else? And so, and there's you know. well, bigger than that. Yeah, is that um, you, you, that's the negative. The positive is I get no reward whatsoever for helping that homeless person. But is, if I do something virtuous in a small town, I all of a sudden receive massive honor points. I know I have just cre- I have just put money in the bank with this tribe. And honor is the source of every heroic example of behavior in the history of humanity. We will always do more for others than we'll do for ourselves. So that's one of the reasons why, you know, in you, any time you see heroic stuff happening, and it's always going to be sports or the military, or firefighters, you know, or, you know, it's always a tribal culture that's expressing heroism. Hmm. And it's because they're doing things for each other. I mean, that's really what it is. Like, you know, that it, in fact, it's quite, it's almost worth it to run into a burning building and die. If you know, you're going to get the glory. Uh, and it's like, there's an ancient um, giant engine of uh, honor-based reward. And it's, it's, and it's the same thing with wolves. You will see wolves throw themselves in the middle, you know, at a, bi- a gigantic bison because that's what they do. They're, I mean, there's a, there's a, um, you know, absolute reciprocity of, of heroic behavior. Whereas if it's just for you, you're like, oh, you know what? I'm going to, I'll wait till that's over and then I'll go in and get mine. Um, anyway. So, yeah, that, that's, that's a big part of the community one is recognizing that there actually is a community and what you do matters. And You know, one thing that comes up when we're talking about this is I think about Burning Man. Scott and I have talked a lot of times about Burning Man and our experiences and taking our fathers there and our families. And what, what comes up is they've really done a good job at creating the systems, the value systems for what it means to have a tribe there. And people follow it. They literally, I mean, we bring new people into our camp and we're like, here's the rules, you know, here's the structure, you know, and you need to provide for yourself, you know? So it's, it, it takes time to learn that, but now we even we're doing it. New people come in, we educate them. 
hey, you may not be a good fit if you can't follow the rules. And so really, I'm seeing the light bulbs go off when you go there. It's such a magical experience because they've created a culture, because people follow that culture, and, and it provides that structure of safety, trust, uh, because people are following it. So, and that's with, what, 80,000 people, <laughs> a little yep. bit larger, but there's still the one to five percent that don't know it that are just there that are against the grain that you know steal bikes had a bike stolen last year or you have these problems happen because they come in without knowing the culture or not caring you know there's always i think a percentage that take advantage of it um there's there's no bike locks in japan oh wow they don't make them Hmm. they don't have them tokyo has no bike locks like because people don't steal bikes it just it it would be so shameful (laughs) To steal a bike, uh, and it, they as a, you know, when I, last time I was in Tokyo, like you could leave a, uh, you know, a wallet on the subway, and it will just get handed in, or it'll still be there. So like there, there is a, you know, the fabric of society, um, you know, it is interwoven with with the values of, of of a culture. So so grounding that in, I mean, one of the things I'm been working a lot on lately is uh, boundaries in, in the context of relationship, in the context of different areas of life. It sounds like another way for this is boundaries is one of the things of I'm developing my values for myself, right? Is that one of the ways that people can kind of ground this in is like, what do I stand for? Uh, what are my values that I'm willing to live by? You know, is that one? I'm just thinking of what are the steps if they want to create a better tribe, if they're feeling, because again, before we go into this next piece, I think another step is I've heard you say, you know, over the last, I think, eight years, men's suicides up 40%. Yeah. And a big problem of that, the number one problem is loneliness. So again, with, with some of these problems of not having kinship, if somebody's listening, you know, what are the effects? Maybe you could talk a little bit about that on what happens if we don't have a kinship and we're alone, a lone wolf. Yeah. Uh, you know, what does that look like? And, and then, then we can, after that, talk about, okay, how do you get back into that? You know, I think is the, is the counteraction yeah. to that. I had a, um, one of our our K four brothers because I'm I'm kind of known as you know the wolf I'm the wolf guy, hmm. and so he sent me a um, a short little video of a a lone wolf in Yellowstone uh, trying to pull down a bison, and I I couldn't watch it, uh, you know I think I watched ten seconds of it, and there's this you know wolf weighs a hundred pounds and a bison weighs you know fifteen hundred pounds. And it was just lone wolf just throwing himself at this mountain of a creature and then just getting dashed into the snow and he back doing it again and then getting dashed into the snow and then he gets bloody and then he's going at it again and then he gets even bloodier. I was like, oh, it's like, you know, it's like all my veterans friends, like there it is. You know, it's like, how do I find community? How do I make money? How do I get success? And you're just getting dashed into the snow again and you cut, you know, bloody and bloody and pro pretty soon you know, you're broken and injured and then you're done. And it, it, it the, the lone wolf, um, gosh, that, that, lo- that Hollywood creation of Rambo and the lone ranger has done more damage to men, I think, than mm. many other things. And we have glamorized it and glorified it as something that is, uh, a, a, a thing to in, aspire to is somehow I am a self-reliant army of one, you know, Batman. I'm Batman. Like, ugh, really? The, you know, the, the, the lone wolf that, 
you know, iconography where you see that lone wolf howling in the moon and it's this super powerful moving uh, thing. It's actually incredibly sad because they're what they're doing is they're they're putting out an, an alarm to every other wolf pack saying, I'm starving to death. Is does anybody have room for me? Does anybody have a slot that I can fill? Please answer back. That's what they're doing. And, and it, it's incredibly it's a sad thing, you know, except. You know, humans, we don't get to um, howl like that. We don't get to pop smoke, if you like we say in the Army. Um, we just act out. You know, we drink. We watch too much porn. We, um, we get in fights. I mean, that's, that's really a cry for help. Um, and, you know, the lone wolf is starving to death. The lone man is starving to death, but it's not a literal starvation because we're not in that type of culture anymore. Although we used to be, it used to be that it was such a death sentence to be alone that, you know, you would be part of any tribe before you would ever be alone in the wilderness. Take it back 10,000 years, no matter what you join a tribe because you're going to die out there. Like you're going to die period. In fact, that's the, that's where even the um, evolutionary um, source of shame comes from why we suffer shame is that shame is the way we regulate behavior um, in the tribe. It's, if you do something that is shameful, like if you litter in our culture, or if, or if you if you break the rules of the tribe, if you if you do not behave by the values of the tribe, then that's shameful. And then other people go oh, we don't like that anymore, meaning we don't really like you anymore, and now you are ostracized and potentially excommunicated. And that's a death sentence. It, I mean, that's the reason why shame hurts so bad, even at a micro level where, you know, as a little kid, you're getting your shoes made fun of. It hurts so badly because it, it, it triggers a death response in your amygdala. It's terribly painful. And it's supposed to be because that's how you regulate behavior in the tribe without actually biting each other and hitting each other. All you got to do is go, mm, you're not cool. Ouch. I'm not mm. cool. I'm going to die. That's what your brain is telling you. And the, and horses do the exact same thing. Horses have mirror neurons. It, horses are run by a female called the brood mare. And yeah, she kicks the crap out of the other mares, but the ultimate threat in, in a wolf pack, or a horse herd or any other communal animal is excommunication. The moment they start, they start driving a misbehaving individual out of the, you know, the tribe, it's a death sentence. So you will either mend your ways and attempt to come back in or you die. And it's evidence of how sick our society is that it's actually safer to be alone than it is to somehow try to join an, a, a, toxic and broken tribe hmm. so um anyway it's a it's such an interesting conversation because i think you know scott and i've had a lot of conversations and and a lot of times sometimes fulfillment is a lot of times people are so i think this is where it gets interesting sometimes because of the tribe and wanting love from the tribe people put on these fake identities to like get love essentially yep. and so totally. sometimes in the levels of fulfillment, it's actually separating themselves from communities or groups or unhealthy relationships that are, that we fall victim to these parts that aren't our authentic selves. So there's almost like this separation in order to figure out like, who am I really at my core? 
what am I passionate about? You know, what, you know, what is that? And then it sounds like then creating tribe again, because if we stay too ostracized alone, like there's that, I forget that book about the guy who goes out on the trailer to be alone and then he dies. You know, it's like <laughs> that old story about he dies on the bus, like going to the, the wild. You know, and yeah. It's like, he literally, you know, what's it called? Yeah. Oh, he it, dies it's in the wild. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great book, great story. And you resonate all the way up until he dies. And you're like, ah, oh, and I think that's what it shows to. So like, yeah. I think as we evolve in levels of consciousness or awareness or levels of fulfillment and happiness, it, it seems like it's super counterintuitive because we move through these stages of removing the tribe, finding self, then recreating tribe, but doing it consciously at a place of like, who shares my values, you know, who shares what I'm doing. So it sounds like this interesting dialogue of both, because if I know I've experienced that, I think I separated myself from communities and people that weren't serving me many times. And then I got so used to that, that I became, think, told myself I was more fulfilled as a lone wolf. And in more recently meeting you, uh, Philip, you really inspired me because I think that's what I learned a lot of is I just lone wolf myself and put on my magician hat and would go to work building. Um, and a lot of times the building that I was doing, um, I'm a lover at heart and I would stay connected, but I was kind of isolated connecting people as a lover through conversations that I felt safe with and then disconnected from everybody else in my sphere. And now my levels of growth have grown through my emotional processing. And I was able to go in and feel a lot of those wounds, feel what I was resisting, go into those resistance areas. And, and now I'm at the next stage where I'm like, oh, I want community again. I want community and I want the people that share a common vision, but have total opposite sides than I do and can bring more awareness where I think in the past I was scared of it because I'd been attacked or I'd been to that, to that conversation. My core wound had been attacked so hard. I'd separated from people from it. And so it's, it's just such an interesting dialogue of how we're um, evolving. I think as species and going back, cause I now seen the value. We, I really need tribe. But if you told me this three years ago, Sometimes I thought being alone was what you needed more than anything. So it's interesting. Curious to your, your thoughts, Scott, or the conversation around it. Uh, it's, well, just a big distinction between um, isolation and solitude. They're profoundly different. Hmm. Um, isolation is, a, um, is not a choice. Solitude is a choice. Interesting. Um, and, and, I, and I, in the same way that vulnerability is a choice. It means that you have the ability to drop your strength and your armor. Sure. It's a choice. And I see so many of the um, young men today that are just um, beating the drum of vulnerability, like somehow that's a, a worthy end goal is to be vulnerable. And the, the, the function of vulnerability is that it provides you some outcome that, again, is valuable. It's not an end unto itself. And so, you know you're not striving to achieve vulnerability. You're striving to achieve strength so that you can then choose to be vulnerable because if you don't have strength first and then you're um, vulnerable, you're just weak. That's just sensitivity. Strength has to happen first. And, and um, so, oh, solitude is a choice. It means that you have intentionally removed yourself so that you can find some sort of focus or clarity hmm. and you're removing the variables of the noise of the tribe or your culture. And so you can uh, primarily achieve um, inspiration and which, you know, literally the spirit enters you. That's why you would, you would um, go off by yourself. Hmm. It's a vision quest. That's the only reason yep. why you would ever go off by yourself is so that you can go 
receive some sort of a, um, you know, blessing or knowledge about who you're supposed to be in the tribe. That's what it is. You know, it's a temporary uh, and it happens in almost every single culture. There's some sort of a function where, you know, the the prodigal son, the prince has to leave the kingdom, the, you know, yes, you do. You do have to leave whatever you're in. You have to go find yourself and then you return with treasure. That's the game. And even in wolves, you know, like um, a, a young, ambitious um, wolf that's born with a big motor who at some point kind of has got a little alpha in him. Like, okay, at some point you got to go do your thing. And yes, there, then there's a lone wolf moment where like, Hey man, I'm going to start, I'm going to, what's our territory. What's past that territory. Ah, there she is. Now I get to have my own wolf pack. And, and that, you know, that's a really valid dynamic of, um, but it's a temporary process. Yeah. It's I'm leaving my pack uh, in order to start my own pack or I'm leading my pack so that I can receive some sort of a um, inspiration so that I can return now with, you know, my role, my, my totem animal, my shamanic lesson or whatever that thing is. I do believe that solitude is such an essential part of our innate process, our innate journey. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, doing your warrior's journey, you know, I'd love to get your feedback on this. Would you even say that the doing the solitude work um, isn't necessarily just this once every three year process where you're like going out into the woods and like becoming a man. And, it, you know, this happens every few years. But, you know, this is something that you're integrating into your life uh, multiple times a year. You know, uh, you know, Cal Newport talks about this in his book, Deep Work, where you really are separating yourself from the distractions so you can really gain insights. You go into your shadows, you do whatever the work you need to do so you can bring it right back out into the world. Meditation is solid. It's it's. Can you really be with yourself for 20 minutes? Yeah. With yourself for 20 minutes. Yeah. And, and, Good point. Uh, and I, you know, I do it every morning and I, you know, I generally dislike it every morning. I mean, I will do, I'll distract myself with, oh, I get to stretch for five minutes and then I put on this nice droning music and, oh, now at least I have music that I can focus on. It's like, okay, but you're not really. Right, right. You haven't really looked in. You're not really becoming the witness because it's hard to be with yourself mm-hmm. and and that's the lesson so um you know there's a uh there's a saying that only gods and monsters live alone mm. only gods and monsters so. yeah I, I find it extremely valuable just because that's what i'm really working on is i think i've been there for a long time so it's a valid conversation hopefully anybody else that's listening that's been a lone wolf uh, can really relate to this. Uh, I wanted to speak on the vulnerability because I thought it was, I loved what you brought up. Uh, I had a great conversation the other day of somebody, because I've been deep around the vulnerability. I mean, even the, a lot of people, because I, I'm into emotional resilience, think that's all it is, is just a bunch of guys talking and sharing. And there's some some truth to that. But I, I had a really interesting distinction and I, I thought it'd be a great platform to share it was, I had a guy that's in another men's group that I was out at and he said, you know, how do you help somebody else that, that needs to open up to vulnerability. And then what do you think about vulnerability? And we've got in this dialogue with a couple of us. Something that was really relevant that came up was, um, my feedback was, I think I used to, to your point earlier, Philip, I think I used to use vulnerability actually as a way to not connect. Hmm. So when I've, the, the more mature I've gotten with vulnerability, 
the more I've learned that I would throw things out so fast in order to keep, it's, it's like, it was almost like in order to protect myself. That makes any sense. It's like, I would just throw it out and kind of say like, I got everything out here, but it was actually more of a abandoning myself and it would actually create unsafety amongst people. Hmm. Um, creating more safety, it actually created less safety because they didn't know how to quite process it. I would throw it out so quickly. And really what I was doing is I was throwing it out so quickly, but I really was abandoning myself in doing it. It's almost like a shield. It was a shield. It was actually protection. Here's all this stuff. So what are you going to attack me with? And then they would attack a lot of times and I would get attacked. So it was almost a setup. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead of attacking me and finding something out, I'll just give it to you to attack me first. And, um, and so I have a story to, to continue to keep, keep space from people with. And as I've matured in vulnerability, I've actually probably shared, I, I share it now pretty clearly when I'm, when I feel it's necessary, but probably a lot more than I used to, uh, because I've learned like when it's relevant, I'll share it and I choose to share it. But I, uh, I think, and also a big thing I've learned is, um, with other people, they'll choose, they'll share when they're ready too. So it's right. almost like how do you, when you leave with vulnerability, you create safety to others, but. I think the discernment in that is really powerful. Like knowing when to, when to do it. And to your point, choosing is what's key. So how do I choose to share this? And again, a lot of times you might share it and it, if it's not the right environment, it can be unsafe. <laughs> and if it's the right environment, it can create safety for other people to open up and go deeper. So I think it's a valid conversation. It's a big movement right now. And there's different opinions in the men's work. Some are, are, um, it can be looked at as some men really need it that have been overly warrior actually need to go into the vulnerability, into that shadow to face things and feel emotions. I think some people that are overly vulnerable actually need to put the emotions uh, down for a little bit, uh, quite honestly, and start to, I think it's an excuse to not get things done and it can be uh, a process. So I wanted to just bring that in because I think that it's a powerful conversation. A lot of people are talking about it and ca- it can lead to more fulfillment and it can also lead to less fulfillment. Yeah. And I think that's relevant. So it's well, not well, a I also. Step. I think that second part is not being that second part isn't being brought up in conversation as much. Like that's something you just don't hear about, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that you use the word distinction. It's a really good word uh, in this conversation because judgment is not bad. Everybody says this is a judgment-free zone. I'm like what? Like no, judgment is actually a really good word. Like when did that become a derogatory word? judgment like we want to have what about good judgment and that used to be like a really positive thing so kind of the the proper the intentional use of judgment discernment kind of fills that slot so that's that's kind of a good one and there is very little well okay there's a huge difference between obviously thoughts and emotions but uh, our limbic system and prefrontal cortex creates them constantly that's all it does. We are just an endless machine that creates emotions and thoughts. And neither one of them is, is, is particularly more valuable than the other one. It's just um, the discernment of which one fits that situation. Sometimes you need to go, all right, I'm feeling embarrassed, but executive function, take over, handle some shit. And then there's sometimes where you're going like, okay, um, executive function, six down, vulnerability and now it's time to connect or to express or to heal and um and the ability to intentionally or you know with discernment decide which one of those operating systems is appropriate for that moment is is really the the outcome of met of a meditation practice because 
the uh, who's the ultimate witness of those two things? That's the bigger question. That's that's kind of the the source of um, the rest of the journey. Um, yeah, you know something else. I think I'd like to just uh, go into for a minute is you brought up something really relevant. Um, we do we do we're part of K four again. I'm I'm support Wolf Tribe because I've been to uh, one of Philip's Wolf Tribe events and I think they're awesome. Uh, I get to hang with wolves, uh, highly supportive of, of his events and his systems. And then with with K four we do you know localized men's work meetings and we had a meeting. And you were talking about the archetype of the warrior and I just wanted to bring it up because I, I know there's a lot of men that are that may end up watching this and other other people in general. But especially with Scott, I think Scott and I really identify with each other because we both want to make money. We both want to have really happy lives. We both want to travel and do epic shit and see the world. Um, we're both okay um, doing hard, strong, physical shit. So again, similar to Philip, why we why we resonate as well. And I think you brought up a really valid conversation. I think it, it's interesting of the conversation of what's happened with men and power and how it's been. Uh, and maybe you could just speak on that to a minute. Of, like there's these two models of like you're either weak yeah. or you're strong. And if you're and again, I think that's a for in order for fulfillment what that next layer looks like is in order to integrate those. So I think un- unveiling that can maybe give people clarity on where they're one or the other. Hmm. Um, K- K4 stands for King of the Four Houses. And the, the houses we're referring to are the masculine archetypes of, um, like Josh was sharing, the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. Hmm. And uh, that was uh, put forth originally by um, Dr. Moore and Dr. Gillette, based off of the work of Carl Jung, based off the work of Freud, based off the work of mythology, right? And I alluded to that when I was talking about the four different behavioral buckets of the wolves. And, and so those four um, classes of behavioral choices um, are really what, um, at a species level, gives you the, the, uh, the roles that you get to play in a tribe. And one of the functions of that vision quest of a young man having a intentional solitude time is to block out all of the variables and distractions of young ladies and, and prideful behavior and uh, everything else and your mom and go off into, and sit in a cir- you know, draw a circle on the ground and sit there until you receive your archetype or your totem animal or your, you know, fill in the blank, it's always there. And so um, the warrior is one of those behavioral models that um, men either are dropped into or they find intentionally. And the, uh, and Dr. Gillette or more use the word warrior. And I kind of reframe that as the knight because the warrior is um, somebody who fights that's what they do. That's their primary function. And I don't think there's any tribe that I'm aware of that that is the end-all goal of any type of career, is that's what I do. I fight. I mean, that's a mercenary. And, um, and so the kind of the operating system societally, when we look at our mercenaries, like whether that be our sports figures, you know, who get paid to fight – yeah, or compete, right? Or our soldiers, or our police. Um, you really only have two options, and one of those is you get to either be um, a good, peaceful man, and that's just as lame as it sounds. I mean, 
That, that's why you never get the chicks because you're a good, peaceful man. Like, oh, really? So I'm that kind of anemic, dismissible, you know, mama's boy, the good guy. Or what, option number two, I get to be the powerful man who's a bad guy, who's edgy, dangerous, corrupt. Ooh, like, all right, pick one, young man. Which you know, what's your choice? And it's like, oh, really? Those are my two choices. And in all of mythology, you know, there's a, you know, it's rife with examples of of a much better choice, which is the hero, which is the combination of goodness and power, which is ultimately when we weld the the shadow and the gold together, and all of a sudden there's a life of meaning or fulfillment. And in athletics, we would call that the flow state, right? That, that's the balance between mastery and chaos or peacefulness and power. That's the grace of the hero. And it's a really, you know, and that's, I think is, is going to be one of the central things that will, um, will heal us. And I talked to my wife about this today. I was looking at the democratic debates. Sorry, I'm going full political now <laughs> too bad, but my God, how, how embarrassing the democratic nominees, Jesus. I mean, like, okay, there they are. There's our little milk toast offering of weakness. And who's on the other side? corrupt, monstrous, powerful, malevolent, you know, like, okay, there we see it. Hmm. Where's that dude in the middle who's powerful, virtuous, good, you know? And I don't know if anybody's listening now, like a JFK fan. I'm like, where's that dude? Where's that guy? Where's the guy who, you know, cares about poor people and is a war hero? Where's that guy? I know they're out there, but we're not running him, you know? And I'm not saying... I'm not choosing side. I'm just saying that's that that's the guy that'll bring us together. So where's the hero in our society? Where's the hero in sports? Where's the hero in business? It's actually happening better in business with the whole rise of the B Corp, social, you know, yeah. conscious capitalism, mm-hmm. um, you know, corporate social responsibility. Like it's a the world is demanding it, and our political system is so far behind the rest of the world or the rest of our, our people, the zeitgeist of, of the, um, of the population is demanding. Like I, I hear so many people that say, why doesn't the rock run for president? Why not Joe Rogan? Why not? Um, you know, where, where's, where's those guys? Where's Colin Powell when we need him, you know, that dude. Anyway, sorry. I, I, I went my high horse there for a minute. <laughs> So that was the war, that was the warrior archetype. Is that really the warrior archetype should be called the hero or the knight? Because the knight's job is not to fight or regulate or be the bad cop or be the dick or the asshole. The knight's job is to quest and to bring back the Grail. The Grail is the source of the elixir that heals the kingdom. In the same way that the elk is the thing that feeds the the pack. That's what the knights are built to do. And um, you know, the Jedi are not soldiers. Oof, how dismissive to refer to a Jedi as a soldier. No, I mean, it's a much bigger thing. A samurai is not a soldier. I mean, the, the soldiers are the, the you know, the, the dumb, untrained savages. And they just give you, give you a pike. And they go out, hey, go charge to those other people. They're the water takers. 
Yeah. Yeah. A samurai. Now that's a that's a high that's a back row chess piece right there. Mm. Everybody wants to be that. And that's that's really our birthright if we're able to integrate some um, more of that that goodness, peace and power. Love it. Scott, do you have other other questions you want to dive into? Um and you had some questions. I didn't know if you got to all of them. Let me just check in. Yeah, no, I did get to all of them. Uh, anything you want to add before we uh, maybe wind down to the uh, you have cool credits, uh, like a cool music that happens? <laughs> <Da, na, na. laughs> you know, I think just one context in case they've been listening and, you know, the archetypes, we, we talked a little about the warrior. Maybe just in for context, if you could just give one example of how uh, you do a great example of kind of talking about all four just so they know what it means. Um, and that way there's at least some context and then we'll, we'll kind of wind that down. Yeah. I really, there's a King warrior magician lover in the middle here. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the basis of this um, is, and you know, not only mythology gives you all these examples uh, and our, our current um, mythology, which is our <laughs> books and movies. And those they're still in that, that we, we just keep generating this in the same way that, we keep the stories that we keep telling fall into the mono myth career, you know, the arc that we cannot stop telling because that's the way that our, the human brain processes um, the unknown. And so we just keep telling the same story over again with the same characters. Um, Rowling is not steeped in um, psychology, but her four houses of Hogwarts King, warrior, magician, lover. You can't stop it. It's in us. It's in, in, in our DNA. So the, um, Carl Jung was the first one to kind of take a deep look at that and realize that really there's two things that make a make an tribal either structure or individual work. And one of them is we are predators and we love to struggle. We need it. But to even be fulfilled in any capacity, there needs to be movement and growth and exploration and expression. So Carl Jung calls that struggle. And that's, that's one of the axes of, um, where's my, I had a sticker. One of these acts, the, this, that's the horizontal axis is called struggle. And then the vertical axis is um, connection. Hmm. So we all need connection. We all need a different amount of struggle. Some people need, a certain a large amount of peace and some people need a large amount of power and we all fall in that continuum somewhere and we all have different um, needs in terms of connection um, and that's a continuum as well so where you would plot yourself on those two axes places you in one of those boxes which are the king the warrior the magician or the lover and at about age seven you have decided and that at that point every other type of behavior that you explore throughout your life is a um, is a shift from your core behavior operating system. Um, and Scott, I, I think you have a strong magician um, aspect to you. Mm. That's, I think that you are um, procedural, you're spiritual, you're look, you quest for understanding and mastery. You tend to isolate um, like there, that's that I get a strong sense of that from you. Hmm. And so it, probably that happened at a very early age where it was like, you know, I 
I needed to be able to somehow disengage from the chaos of the lunchroom to be able to understand what the hell is going on. Sure. In fact, sometimes even if I could spend time reading, it's much safer and more valuable for me than engaging with the madness of the playground. And totally. Eventually, yeah. you know, that, that is, becomes the infrastructure of the shamans, which you would be in a different culture. Uh, a wise man, a wizard, some, you know, somebody who saw, or the mechanic of understanding how things work. And um, so those, those, um, those four archetypes, um, the king archetype, which is high struggle, high connection, that's an innovator. That's the charismatic person who deals with big picture, visionary, innovative solutions to stuff. And until that king partners with the magician, because they're the diagonal, then the king does not receive um, the actual tools to create their vision. They end up just dreaming their life away with great big plans and going to Coachella. Hmm. And that's the end, right? In the same way that uh, the magician is not able to ever fully find a place, a way to express themselves and find their voice until they usually partner with a king who's able to um, be able to give them some sort of a, a, a platform through which to use their magical weapons and their swords and the thing they bring to the world. Hmm. Um, the other diagonal, uh, which we talked about previously, is um, the warrior and the lover are the two diff- other poles. And the warrior is that assertive, uh, aggressive, task, tasky, uh, driven and decisive man or woman that uh, thrives in competitive situations is able to um, to move decisively through things and not stuck in wallowing in uh, minutia or details or emotions. They're able to actually simply just move, and that's balanced out by the lover who's compassionate and empathetic, but is oftentimes hamstrung by um, their inability to set healthy boundaries and deal with conflict. So those two balances work really, really well together in most long-term relationships, which is either platonic or professional or romantic or or 90% diagonal. Hmm. We're just built, we're built for it. Is that because it creates polarity? There's no traction. They just complement each other. Mm-hmm. They need each other. They are the yin to the yang, the shadow to the gold. Yeah. Um, the you know the um, your partner um, ideally is somebody who's much more um, uh, like either not intu- intuitive might not be the right word, but much more free spirited, freewheeling, expressive, extroverted, and you ground them. Hmm. You know, you ground them with, um, and they need you to do that, and you need them to do that. It's just that, and I don't know you well, so I might, I, I'm just kind of throwing that out there. But. I'd actually say, I mean, I'd actually say Michelle really wears that queen archetype really strong, uh, which is Scott's wife. Mm. Uh, she's got a ton of projects. She's got, I mean, super creative, uh, amazing singer, uh, a lot of amazing projects, tons, tons of friends, constantly with friends, constantly traveling. I mean, like, I, I think she's touring like, Four different, like some. She's doing a Queens program right now, right? And she's traveling. Yeah, yeah. So she's yeah. traveling all over the world and, doing programs and 
Amazing. And her shadow is that she gets distracted. She gets diffused. She says yes to too many things. And that, that diminishes her ability to create her kingdom. Hmm. So you ground her with mastery and procedures and a little bit more of a critical thinking. It's a good balance. Hmm. And then the flip side is he, and she grounds him, right? So what would be the flip for him? Um, She's inspired. She's a conduit to the universe. Hmm. Whereas you quest to understand the universe. You're willing to go in and um, understand the systems and ask the questions and Hmm. do the research and find out the algorithms. Like you are an alchemist. And she is a, um, she's a, she's a um, receiver. Hmm. She's a receiver. The grounded yeah. man, which is really funny. Scott's name is Alchemic One, and I think it's all, even Alchemic Coaching is his coaching. Oh, yeah, even Alchemic that, Empowerment. Yeah, yeah, even that fine tuned. <laughs> um, alchemy is is work. Alchemy doesn't, you know, is not random. Alchemy means you are intentionally in the woodshed doing the work. Right. And that, one of the- and she's expressing herself. She's an expressive. And one of the things I've, I've seen, and just from the last one you were you were going over the magician, is uh, sometimes we focus too much on perfectionism if we're the magician archetype, right? And so getting out in the world is part of that that balance. That balance is that where the the queen or the king is in the world constantly failing and doesn't have to be perfect, where the magician tends to hold back until it's the best of the best of the best. And the challenge can be that we never get into the world. Is that the is that kind of the context of it where where it could get where that balance comes? So she helps you bring it into the world, and you help her be more masterful. And then the, the other side with the lover and the warrior, the warrior helps because I've been a lot of the lover. I, I, I have other archetypes, but my primary has been a lot of that lover and building healthy, healthy boundaries and being able to go be okay with conflict has been a, a huge one for me. Um, it's changing everything, even my relationship to business partnerships of like saying, even when, when you were just mentioning that, I didn't realize it, but I could get so full of emotion. And it's really interesting when you were, when you were mentioning that. It is. A lot of times I'll shut down. Even though I got a lot of projects, it's more of emotionally how do I respond to all these people and situations? And it's the people and the energetic connections huh. that I just made that connection with is where I get tapped with. It's not because I have the projects. It's a big distinction. So thank, thanks, Philip. I just got that. I'm like, ah, it's actually the people. I'm thinking like there's 50 lines of people's conversations that I'm managing and I get tapped. I'm trying to do it. And I just kind of tap. <laughs> so it's not the projects. And then, the, so it's just an interesting distinction versus. And you, you keep saying yes. Joshua, you keep saying yes. Mm-hmm. That's what you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Scott says no. He knows how to say no. <laughs> you, do too. you do too. That's why I need you. Uh, okay. You know? Yeah. Scott and I know how to say no. Mm-hmm. That's, that's part of our, our gold that comes from our sometimes isolative ways mm-hmm. is that um, we know how to say no. Whereas your lady, Scott, and Joshua, they don't say no to anything. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Some truth to that. Uh, That's the connection axis. They thrive in connection, and we need less connection. So we're able to be a little bit um, cooler in our response. We're able to see things without being overwhelmed by emotion. In fact, when we do get too much emotion, it's overwhelming to us. And so we tend to um, isolate 
Beautiful. As we wind out the interview in the podcast, we like to do rapid fire questions just to get a little more insight, personality to see who Philip is. So if you're uh, up for that, we'll kind of do some really quick rapid fire questions. Okay. All right. Are you a sweet or savory guy? I'm a savory guy. Yeah. Uh, Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Wars? Jeez. Yeah. All right. Uh, Let's see. Um, Apple or Android? Apple. Dog or cat person? Dogs. (laughs) Uh, Love or hate black licorice? Hate. (laughs) Uh, Hippopotamus or wolf? Wolf. Trick question. Uh, All right. Superpower, invisibility, or super strength? Do I have to choose one of those two? You got to choose one. Damn. Invisibility or super strength? Yep. Super strength. (laughs) Favorite holiday? Halloween. Talking or texting? Oh. That's a tough one, right? Yeah, I, I definitely need to talk more. Phone calls are hard for me. Yeah. Watch or no watch? Actually, I I think I already have that one answered. Always a watch. Yeah. And here's just a random one. Do you have a favorite movie? Uh, I'm going to go Fight Club. Beautiful. Great. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what you're up to as far as Wolf Tribe and K4 and how people can learn a little bit more about what you're doing, how they can support you, and you know any relevant information that you want to leave with. Okay, um, my fulfillment, my capital P purpose in the world is to reintroduce um, the health and high performance of tribe and kinship back in the world. I think mm. this is gonna, this is my um, Excalibur, I guess, in yeah. attempting to push back against some of the darkness that I see. So, if anybody listening has either a platform like a podcast or any other speaking um, opportunities where you would like a semi-educated anthropologist person to come and uh, share, I would love to be on. Uh, if you have a team, a culture that, um, you know, need of any organization, uh, I would love to consult with you and that would be a, an, an honor to do that. And then um, uh, my website is wolftribe.life, kind of easy to remember or philipfolsom.com. They both go to the same place. And um, my big, I guess, ask is if you've got some karma to work off, um, I run a nonprofit, 501c3, that is a suicide prevention for our warriors. And those mm. are uh, police, fire, and veterans. And it's called Sparta. So thespartaproject.org. And uh, it's super lean, uh, no salaries for you know all all the staff and and we, we would really love uh, any support for uh, if you want to help help the vets and the and the warriors with some of the mental health challenges. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, sharing your wisdom, and for anybody else out there, feel free to reach out to us or to Philip directly. We'll go ahead and put all the links uh, on Facebook as well as the website. Again, it's always masteringfulfillment.com. Philip, again, thank you so much. We love you and uh, we appreciate you being on the program. My man, it was a pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, we would be so grateful if you left a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us out immensely. Thank you so much.
Are you ready to take your personal, relational or business fulfillment to the next level? With one-on-one -on -one personal support, co-developed strategies and accountability, Scott and Joshua have the tools, compassion and years of experience helping people just like you live an extraordinary life. Visit MasteringFulfillment.com for details.